1: episode 181. I can't believe it. <laughs> and thank you so much for listening. Bienvenidos, bitches. Let me tell you about Fruit Loops. It's a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. What? Uh-huh. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives in the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly.
0: (laughs) And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth and I just happen to be white. It's
1: not her fault and we love her so much. (laughs) Anyway, she's one of the good ones.
0: (laughs) We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to Pod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-62. 602-935-62. Nine, nine four, four. <laughs> <laughs> and we may feature it on a future episode also our website is
1: Pod.com. we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a fruit loops patron yeah you can also support us by supporting our sponsors and sharing our yeah. show with your friends please do so before we
0: get into it who- are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Matthew Emanuel Macon, aka the Monster of Mid Michigan. Oh, dang! A serial killer who terrorized Lansing, Michigan, in the mid two thousands. Whoa.
1: Okay. Well, before we get into that terrifying tale, how you
0: doing? <laughs> I'm all right. You know, just getting ready for Christmas. Bought my oh, tickets yeah. to see my daughter in Yay! North Dakota. Oh, uh, <laughs> <but,
1: laughs> yeah. Sounds cold.
0: <laughs> I'm excited to see my grandson, really. I uh, know. I know yeah. that little cutie. Um,
1: well, that's really exciting. Are you going to be there for a long time and never no. come back? No. Oh,
0: no. Um, <laughs> just actually just like five days because I okay. can't take that much time off of work. Son of a bitch. I know. Ugh. Well,
1: I'm glad that you're going to get a little time off and get to spend it with the ones that you love, which is what it's all about. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Um so I had an amazing weekend. I went to True Crime Fest, ATL. Yeah, I'm so jealous. Okay. Well, I didn't know what to expect, but it was really, really cool. So I met up with Nina instead, who's the host of Already Gone. And uh, she's like, oh, 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 gee. Yeah. Of true crime podcasting. Brandon with Music City 911 was my trivia partner. Um, <laughs> and I... Love his show so yeah, much. I was such I a dork. I was such a <laughs> dork with him. He had like I, uh, but he was so wonderful and kind. Um and Lainey, um, I forget her name, but she is also an O O G of True Crime Podcasting. Cam and Jen from our True Crime Podcast, wonderful. Murder She Told was there, Crime Lines was there. Um Whitney and Melissa from Colts Crimes and Cab were there. Um, and Eric from True Crime Consequences, the host of southern gothic brandon was there um bob with the fence diaries was there that was pretty cool um i'm sorry if i'm forgetting anyone but thank you so much nina i think nina was the one who put it all on and uh thanks to everyone who came out it was great it was wonderful. So awesome! Yeah. Do they do that every year? They're planning on doing it all over the country. Is oh, my wow. understanding? Okay. So they'll have different ones in different cities at different venues, and whoever's like whoever, whichever true crime podcaster is local to that
0: area, um, will be responsible for like wow. The place so there's that a lot stuff. of local podcasts in Atlanta. No. <laughs> Oh okay. <laughs> so Nina is from
1: is Atlanta. well she she uh is like lives in two places but um one of her residences is, is in Atlanta. But everybody else okay. like flew in oh, um, wow. from Texas or whatever, so um, it was just really, really, really
0: cool. Yeah, so right on. Well, I'm glad you had fun and you got you. to meet all the folks. And I, miss, I missed you. I, I'm jealous. I, yeah, I, I wish, I wish I'd been able to go. I know, me too. And um, I think that if you had been my
1: trivia partner, no offense, Brandon, um, we would have won. <laughs> <laughs> but I, me and Brandon were like, I don't know, is, <laughs> I don't, I don't. I don't know this i don't know this who killed who in the 70s i don't know uh, my answer for all the questions was like doo-doo head <laughs> um but it didn't get very many laughs anyway so uh, let's let's get into some listener letters hello angels
0: uh, thank you <laughs> What's in that bag, Beth? <laughs> All right, I just wanted to say uh, thanks to Isaac for your kind letter. Okay, so we have two Patreons. Shout out to Gigi
1: and shout out to Melissa L. Okay, so happy holidays, rocking around with Gigi at the <laughs> <Drew> True <Grant> Crime Podcast. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, hope you like that, Gigi. All right. <laughs> Thank and, you, Gigi. <laughs> thank you, Gigi. And then Melissa. Feliz, Melissa. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Feliz, Melissa. Feliz, Melissa. Y muchas gracias <laughs> por tu Patreon. So thank y'all so much for supporting our little show.
0: We're going to yeah, take a quick drink and then you. we're going to
1: get into the story when we come
0: back.
2: And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network.
1: All right, well, uh, hey! We're back. We remind us Beth. <laughs> who is our subject?
0: Today we're talking about Matthew Emanuel Macon, a serial killer who terrorized Lansing, Michigan. Oh, Santa Maria. Let's get into some stay a
1: <laughs> oh my God. Is 2022 over yet? Cause I'm sick of this shit. We're getting close. <laughs> Good. Okay. So um, first want to say rest in power to all the victims who lost their lives, peace and love to the survivors. Cause there are people who survived his attacks and also um, peace and love to the individuals and community left in the wake of these horrific acts. Yeah. Um, so these are the people who were assaulted and murdered. Barbara Jean Tuttle, 45. We don't know her race. Carolyn Cronenberg, 60 years old, was white. Ruth Hallman, 76 years old, was white. Deborah K. Cook, 36, race not reported. Deborah Renfors, 46, was white. Sandra Icorn, 64, race not reported. Karen Louise Delgado Yates, 41, was Latinx. And um, Linda Jackson was 56. Her race was not reported. She was assaulted and beaten. Linda survived and was key in getting justice for the others who did not. Um, so... She's a survivor. She's not going to give up. What I think of is that, you remember when Whitney Houston, she was like, she got an award and she was like, I'm a survivor. <laughs> what? What? I want to thank my team. Linda, Mary, Macon, Wendy, Beth. Ooh, uh-huh. You remember that? She I don't. Like, oh my gosh.
0: Okay. Well, <laughs> guess it's just
1: me and TikTok. Anyway, Megan's <laughs> nickname was I think Ch- Chicky or Chili. Huh. Did you?
0: I didn't, I didn't read about that. no.
1: His nick. He went by like Chicky Smith. Um oh. and okay. uh, but I you gave a fire um. I don't know if I should say fire, but the monster of mid-Michigan. I didn't see that one in my research. (laughs) So, whoa. Um, So uh, his crimes escalated to murder in 2004 and 2005. Um, There were numerous other assaults and beatings in Lansing, not officially linked to Mankin, but very likely done by him. Um, His victims were various races and ethnicities. Some were sex workers and some were not. But what all these women had in common is that they were alone or lived alone. Um, His MO was violent violent assault and bird be, beating and murder is called murder. Um, I just made it up. Uh, so he would beat and uh, beat his victims to murder them. And um, so there is a sexual assault
0: component in his crimes as well. So now it's time to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Lansing, a city in central Michigan. The Anishinaabeg people who originally inhabited the area are a group of culturally related indigenous peoples present in the Great Lakes region of Canada and the United States. They include the Ojibwe, Odawa, Potawatomi, Mississaugas, Nipissing, and Algonquin peoples.
1: The Anishinaabeg ceded the land to the United States in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. I've gone to look for America Where there were already people there But um, So the indigenous people did not cede their rights To live on and use the land Nevertheless, mm. the United States government Then designed and deployed legal means And only legal according to the colonizers' laws And their laws right, alone Right, right, exactly To remove indigenous peoples in violent ways And reallocate lands to
0: European and European-American settlers
1: Surprise! Look at that yeah. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> The area that is now Lansing was originally surveyed in 1825 in what was then dense Forest. In the winter of 1835 and early 1836, two brothers from New York plotted the area that is now known as R.E.O. Town, a neighborhood just south of downtown Lansing, and they named it Biddle City. What a name. Oh, like Tiggle Bitties, huh?
1: Um, Also, you rarely do voices, and I'm so surprised,
0: overjoyed. I I don't know. Yeah, I I did that for you. I, oh, thank you so much, friend.
1: Um, Well, I'm all set for Christmas. All this, all of (laughs) it. All of this land lay in a floodplain and was underwater during the majority of the year. Regardless, the brothers went back to New York, specifically Lansing, New York, to sell plots for the town that did not exist. Mm. They told the residents of Lansing, New York, that this new city had an area of 65 blocks, contained a church and also a public and academic square. Hmm, Sounds nice. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) How do I sign up? Oh, wait, I'm black. I can't.
0: A group of 16 men bought plots in
1: the non-existent city.
0: Upon reaching the area later that year, they found that they had been scammed. Oh my god. Wow. Bummer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they had Airbnb scams
0: before Airbnb. Before Airbnb. Look at this. Yeah. <laughs> Those who stayed quickly renamed the area Lansing Township in honor of their home village in New York. The settlement of fewer than 20 people remained a sleepy village until the winter of 1847.
1: At the time, Detroit was the capital of Michigan, but many people were concerned about Detroit's close proximity to British-controlled Canada, which had captured Detroit in the War of 1812. During a multi-day session to determine a new location for the state capital,
0: many cities, including Ann Arbor, Marshall, and Jackson, lobbied hard to win the designation. Unable to reach a consensus due to the constant political wrangling, out of frustration, the Michigan House of Representatives chose the township of Lansing. When announced, many present openly laughed that such an (laughs) insignificant settlement was now the capital city of Michigan.
1: Wow. Uh, So two (laughs) months later, Lansing Township was officially made the state capital.
0: The legislature shortened the township's name to
1: Lansing. In 1859, the settlement having grown to nearly 3,000 people and encompassing about seven square miles was incorporated wow. out of the city. Wow, you
0: guys are really doing seven big Seven square miles. Okay,
1: Lansing.
0: In August 1897, Olds Motor Vehicle Company was founded in Lansing. In 1905, the founder, Ransom E. Olds, started his REO Motor Car Company, which would last in Lansing for another 70 years. REO Town, the neighborhood we mentioned earlier, is named after Olds and the Ario brand, and just as an aside, the Ario Speedwagon (gasps) was a light motor truck model, an ancestor of the modern pickup truck, manufactured by Ario Motor Car Company.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I thought it was just a band that stood up for their names. Wow! Oh my god, my mind is so blown right now. Clark and Company Carriage Works also produced the less successful Clark Mobile in Lansing in nineteen oh three. The city was transformed into a major American industrial center for the manufacturing of cars and car parts among other industries. The city continued to grow, and by nineteen fifty-six, it was fifteen square miles. Wow. Oh my god, double! A. It then doubled in size over the next decade to its current size of roughly thirty-three square miles. Wow, wow. When you dream big. <laughs>
0: Under Michigan's civil rights statute, racial discrimination in public places was unlawful. The statute was, of course, not enforced. <laughs> mhm. Until African American dentist Emmett Bolden in 1925 asked for seating on the main floor of Keith Theater. The theater's refusal led to a landmark 1927 decision of the Michigan Supreme Court which overturned a lower court decision in favor of the theater.
1: Wow. But in other later cases, the court's position was that theaters, circuses, racetracks, private parks, and the like were private enterprises and anything not government-sponsored or funded could discriminate as they pleased. Who wants to do all that? You know how much work it is to discriminate? Why? Stop it. The Michigan Supreme Court also held that racial covenants, deed provisions forbidding homeowners to resell to Black people and other practices hampering housing integration um, and also wealth in um, Black communities were not illegal under Michigan or federal civil rights laws.
0: Malcolm X lived in the Lansing vicinity from 1928 to 1940. At first, The family lived in the white neighborhood of Westmont. Malcolm's father, Earl Little, disturbed the status quo by refusing to move to the Black area of town. And he gained a reputation as being a, quote unquote, uppity Negro, unquote.
1: Holy shit. Well, welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. An uppity Negro? What's that? Well, it is a fearless (laughs) Black person who, by social definition, is not in their place or mm-hmm. who goes against the rules of white supremacist society and norms. If a white person or someone from a higher caste interpretive a, a black or indigenous person's um, actions as uppity. It was often fatal. You could die, Yeah. Um, which ends ends up happening to Malcolm X's father. He was killed by the plan.
0: The land company that owned the Westmont subdivision took Earl Little to court in 1929. The company argued that because the land contract stated only Caucasians could live there, Earl was in breach of contract. The court ruled that Earl Little could own property in the subdivision, but he could not live there. What? Therefore, he and his family had to vacate the home. Yeah. Oh my
1: God. But before the eviction took place, the Littles' house was burned down and the police arrested Earl on arson charges. Are you kidding me? Which <laughs> were later dropped. The family has always maintained that the Black Legion, a white supremacist group with connections to the KKK, was responsible for the arson.
0: On September 28, 1931, a streetcar hit Earl Little, killing him. The authorities ruled it a suicide, but well, Malcolm and his family believed that the Black Legion was responsible. Oh my God. Because Earl Little's death certificate declared suicide, his wife Louise could not collect insurance money and the family fell into financial hardship. That That is really shitty.
1: It is really so shitty and then Malcolm X ended up, you know, turning to a life of crime to support himself etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Right. And we know what happened after that. So in 1990, Lansing was the 145th largest city in the United States with a population of approximately 127,000. It's since fallen to the 268th Eighth largest city in
0: the United States.
1: Lansing is currently 11.2% smaller than it was in 1990.
0: Many of Michigan's cities share an economic history dominated by manufacturing, characterized by slow or declines in economic growth from 1990 to 2000. In 1970, the average share of residents in the older industrial cities employed in manufacturing was almost 31 percent, with all having a manufacturing employment share of at least 25 percent. So, you know, these big manufacturing cities, um, a lot of people worked. In oh, yeah. I mean, it was. History. Yeah, you
1: could. I mean, I think of like the Simpsons. You could go get a job in the Motor City, raise a family, three kids, wives stay at home. It was a good place to work or a good industry. to be in. At yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah. But uh, deindustrialization over the past several decades has left these cities struggling. It's been a very tough transition for Michigan as a whole and for the Lansing region in particular. From 1970 to 2000, the average number of these cities residents who were employed in manufacturing declined by over 46 percent. Wow. Yeah. 23 percent of residents have an income below the poverty line.
0: The racial demographics of Lansing at the time when our subject was growing up there were 73 percent white and 19 percent black. Less than one percent were Native American. Lansing has since become less white and more black. As of the 2020 census, it is 51% white and 23% black. Oh, that's interesting.
1: So now we're going to get into Matthew Macon's early life. So Matthew Emmanuel (laughs) Macon, a black male, was born on September 8th, 1979 in Lansing. He grew up with physical and sexual abuse by his father, who did the same to Matthew's older sister. Not a great formative experience for a young child.
0: No, no not at Mm-mm. all Mm-mm. that middle name though Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. yeah <laughs> so Emmanuel means God is with us oh. so uh, yeah. very nice to give your child that name but mm-hmm. it, it's uh, not so good <laughs> when your kid turns out to be a serial killer
1: yeah really yeah, yeah you're right um well let's see who knows maybe matthew might have ended up being very different he had if he had had a better childhood
0: yeah absolutely yeah his
1: was just awful like yeah.
0: next level awful like yeah on a scale of
1: one to ten it was like a 20
0: <laughs> so one of minnie's favorite versions of the christmas carol oh come oh come emmanuel is the joan Baez version have you heard it who? Joan Baez? <laughs> I don't think I know no. who that is. White lady <laughs> in the sixties. Oh. She was oh, like a my folk favorite. Just singer. Kidding. Yeah. Nope, 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 not <laughs> <Okay>. familiar. <laughs> anyway, uh Minnie says, quote, the song didn't exactly conjure up thoughts of brutal serial killer for me before, but it does now. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matthew Emanuel Macon. And by that I mean fuck you very much. Miserable excuse for a Macon. There we go. I bet all the real Macons don't want to claim you as their own. Faith Fake just like fake bacon. No one wants it. Okay, I'm done.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, that's many. Yeah, that's <laughs> many. Another one. Whoa. So who knows? Maybe Matthew might have ended up being very different had he had a better childhood. But his yeah. was just awful. There was just yeah. nothing good to say about the childhood he was given.
0: Yeah. Reportedly, Matthew's father would also use broomsticks and other objects to commit sexual and physical abuse against his children and his wife on a regular basis. Not only was Matthew subjected to this abuse himself, he was also forced to witness the abuse of his mother and sister.
1: Oh my God. So Matthew's older sister was eventually placed into foster care when the abuse of her came to light in 1983, when Matthew was only four years old. After this, Matthew himself became a ward of the state as well.
0: He spent the remainder of his youth in different group homes and juvenile facilities, lacking any kind of stability in his life with the memories of horrible abuse witnessed and felt at such a young age as the only constant to carry with him. In
1: 1989, when Matthew was 10 years old, he ran away from a foster care home. He was subsequently branded a delinquent court ward. The same year, that same year, he was charged with and pleaded guilty to breaking into a Lansing bike shop and comic store. Ten-year-old stuff.
0: He yeah. was just
1: ten years old. Ten. Right. <laughs> he didn't really have any chance of anything like a normal childhood.
0: Yeah. Three years later, in 1992, he was sent to a place called Boys Town in Nebraska. Uh-huh. And that sounds like one of those places that seems nice, but is actually terrible. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> so a little history on Boys Town, originally called Father Flanagan's Boys Home. It was founded by Irish immigrant Father Edward Flanagan in 1917 as an orphanage for boys, regardless of their race or religion.
1: A fierce critic of the eugenics movement when Father Flanagan wanted to expand his home for boys and he was informed by Omaha authorities that Jim Crow laws made it illegal he was mixing them races, religions, and nationalities that fuck you guys. He just <laughs> built his own village. And Boys Town is now an official village in Nebraska. I've seen yeah. it with my own eyes. Yeah. And I was worried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. saying quote there are no bad boys there is only bad environment bad training bad example bad thinking unquote hmm. father flanagan was charismatic and beloved by many spencer tracy played him in the movie boystown in 1938 and won an oscar for his performance i haven't seen it but uh, yeah there's that okay and charles nicholas deacon jones a black american steeplechase runner who competed at the 19 19- Fifty-six and 1960 Olympics was an alumni of Boys Town. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I went into kind of a, a rabbit hole about mm-hmm. Father Flanagan. I was looking for anything bad about him. And it seems like he was legit. He was a oh. good person. And oh, wow. uh, he genuinely wanted to help these kids because he saw how they were being treated other places. Mm. And he he wanted them to have a good environment. And, yeah. 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 A lot of the boys thought of him actually as as their dad.
1: And he was
0: on, um, when they joined the army, they would Mm -hmm. list him as their father. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it seems like he was legit.
1: Wow. Oh my gosh, that warms my heart.
0: I know, me too. Well,
1: in 1948, President Harry Truman sent Father Flanagan to Germany to help address the crisis of displaced children following the Second World War. He had a massive heart attack in Berlin Lynn and died there on May 17th, 1948.
0: Oh no! Yeah. Father Flanagan once said, quote, the work will continue, you see, whether I'm there or not, because it's God's work, not mine, unquote. But since his death, Boys Town has been surrounded by controversy, including various allegations of fraud, abuse, and sexual abuse.
1: That is unfortunate. In Mother, 1993, yeah. when Matthew was 14, he was arrested for sexually assaulting a girl with a stick. And the girls reported to be younger than 13 years old. Wow. Um, yeah. He pleaded guilty to the charges and was placed in a juvenile facility.
0: While in the facility, Matthew, along with a friend from the facility, decided to escape. Using their not yet fully developed juvenile brains, they also made the great decision to steal a car and break into a grocery store. Of course, they got caught, and Matthew was then sent to yet another juvenile facility, one that provided sex offender treatment.
1: When Matthew was 16 at a juvenile court hearing in Ingham County, a court referee said of him that he would require lifetime vigilance. Even though he was making progress in the program, the referee noted that sexual offending is like an addiction for Matthew. After he completed a sexual offender program in October 1997, when he was 18, a social worker said at his hearing that the likelihood that he would commit another sex offense was, quote, very slim unquote well I guess we can end the episode
0: (laughs) yeah Uh, (laughs) everybody lived happily ever after (laughs) all right Um, just kidding
2: American Vigilante, now. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that.
0: Now let's hop on into the timeline. Hop, hop. <laughs> After Macon was released as an adult, he ended up being picked up again for larceny in 1999 when he was 20. He pleaded guilty, was given credit for time served while awaiting trial, and ended up with three years probation, which he then violated in 2001. That didn't take long. Wow.
1: Of <laughs> course he did. So he was then sentenced to 10 years in prison for the violation, wow. then, released on, then released on parole, and- again in 2003 well so he got 10
0: years but yeah (laughs) but he was released like almost immediately (laughs)
1: uh yes um which i don't understand but big shocker here get ready he (laughs) violated his parole once more and was sent back then he was paroled again in 2004 how many lives does this guy have
0: wow yeah (laughs) On December 20th, 2004, 45-year-old Barbara Jean Tuttle was found bludgeoned to death in her home on North Washington in Lansing, where she lived alone. The week prior, she had been sexually assaulted but unable to positively identify her attacker. Oh, oh man. Wow. I wonder if it was uh, the same The same guy. attacker. Yeah, it yeah. was
1: making. I, yeah. I, I, all signs point to yes. Yes,
0: yeah. We couldn't find much information about Barbara, but she had been described by people who knew her as a very sweet person. Mm. Police were unable to find enough evidence to identify a suspect at the time, and the case went cold.
1: On the morning of Tuesday, January twenty fifth, two 2005, 60-year-old college professor carolyn cronenberg a white woman was preparing to teach a class when she was attacked she was found murdered inside her classroom at lansing community college in lansing michigan she had been sexually assaulted with a computer remote control device badly beaten and left to die
0: Carolyn was an honored member of faculty, having been awarded a Distinguished Service Award in 1991. Mm. She'd been teaching at the college for a long time, and other faculty and students knew and liked her. She specialized in teaching student development courses, such as techniques of study, successful interpersonal relationships, and dealing with stress. This was a terrible loss to the college community, as a lot of the students who start at community college really need to learn those skills in order to do well Mm -hmm. in their classes, and in life in general. Mm.
1: Rest in power, Carolyn. Two days yeah. later,
0: on January 25th,
1: 2005, 26-year-old Claude McCullum, he uh, was a neurodivergent black student. Um, he was struggling with homelessness, and he often slept at the college where Carolyn taught. He was a student there. He was taking business classes, I think. Um, but he was arrested and brought in for
0: questioning at the Lansing Police Station. The investigators told him he might be able to help them solve a murder, oh, and my he God. wanted to help. So he agreed to cooperate and submitted to a lengthy interview with them. During the interview, they asked Claude how, if he were the murderer, he might have killed Carolyn. Oh my God. Based on his responses, they then charged him with rape and murder because, according to them, he gave details only the killer would have known. Mm. More likely, they fed him those details. Making a murderer anyone?
1: (laughs) Hello. Hello. Sounds
0: so familiar.
1: Yeah, and uh, this is January 2005, and There, this wasn't um, taped. it wasn't a taped oh. um, questioning, um, which is also fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, so more than a year later in February 2006, Claude McCollum's trial in Ingham County Circuit Court finally began. Evidence was given that a strand of fiber was found on McCollum's clothing and that the fiber might have come from Croningbird's sweater might. I'm gonna say that again. It might have come from it. Is that apparently that's all you need to close a case these days in two thousand six in Lansing, Michigan. Yeah. Shame on them.
0: And get this. There was also testimony that the DNA found under Carolyn's fingernails did not match Claude, but wow. was from an unidentified male. <laughs> okay. So it did not match Claude, and it did match an unidentified male, an unidentified male who was not Claude. <laughs> um, but that <laughs> confession, though, right? Totally God. solid. So solid, in fact, that the jurors were convinced by it, and Claude was found guilty. I'm baffled by people who
1: believe confessions. Yeah. Um. It, it just, it, in the face of all the evidence. And we'll get into, this was a... a I hate what they did to Claude. Um, Yeah, but it also allowed for the real bad guy to continue to do what he was doing, and justice to not really be served up to this point. Yeah. Um, So on February 14th, 2006, the jury convicted Claude McCullum of the 2005 sexual assault and murder of Carolyn Cronenberg, and he was sentenced to life in prison on fucking Valentine's Day.
0: Damn. Wow. The community believed they were now safe because the brutal killer had been removed from the streets. The attacks had stopped because, coincidentally, right around the time that Claude was incarcerated and undergoing trial, fake bacon, I mean Macon, (laughs) (laughs) Uh let's just call him Bago Bits. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Had been imprisoned yet again for parole violations. Oh, and for the third degree home invasion and assaulting, resisting, obstructing a police officer. Baco Bits was released again on parole on June 26, 2007.
1: Wow. So on July 26, 2007, a month later, neighbors arrived at the home of 76-year-old Ruth Hallman, a white woman who lived on West Leaper Street in Lansing to find her severely injured, but still conscious and moving. Ruth had been able to crawl to her front door, 76 years old and beaten, to let them in, but had not been able to open it. The neighbors thought she had injured herself on her lawnmower, then fell and cut her head. But paramedics called to the scene, discovered it was much worse than that.
0: She had been so brutally attacked that one of her fingers was almost completely severed. And she had been hit so hard with a hammer on the side of her head that there was a hole in her skull. Oh my God. She was still somewhat conscious in transport to the hospital and told the paramedics to call the police, but she couldn't elaborate and soon became unable to answer any more questions. Two days later, she succumbed to her injuries. Oh, my goodness.
1: Rest in power, Ruth. Ruth was described as a giving person who would do anything for other people, never asking for anything in return. She was well-loved in the community, having always reached out to help those in need, taking them to the doctor, to the market, or giving them food, clothing, or money if they needed it. She would spend time going to yard sales to buy things to give to others in
0: the neighborhood. Over 400 people came to a celebration of life service for Ruth. Wow. Ruth had also wanted her neighborhood to be safe for kids to play in and had been active with the police department, giving them information about potential drug houses, drug dealers, supplying lists of names, landlords and even license plate numbers.
1: Wow. She sounds like she is not to be messed with. Right. No. That's a good. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of uh, auntie or grandma you want in your neighborhood. Um, <laughs> you Nobody would get away with anything. Um, so <laughs> hours after Ruth was found, detectives interviewed a confidential informant who told them that the local drug dealers were likely responsible for her attack. Can't always trust what those informants are, nope. are feeding you. Um, the informant was alleged to have said that, quote, old white lady had seen something she should not have seen. So they had made an example out of her, unquote.
0: Okay. The informant gave names and agreed to set up the drug dealers to get them arrested. So early the next morning, officers from the city's special tactics and rescue team raided the alleged dealer's apartment, arresting four men on drug charges. Detectives interviewed them, but they denied any involvement in Ruth's assault. Other arrests of alleged drug dealers led to similar dead ends
1: the time even though there were similarities between ruth's death and the 2004-2005 deaths of barbara jean tuttle and carolyn cronenberg police hadn't yet linked them as carolyn's murder was considered solved and remember claude what they did to claude and ruth's murder was considered a drug dealer revenge killing barbara's murder was still unsolved but was considered a separate incident
0: About two weeks after Ruth's attack and days after her funeral, at about 4.30 a.m. on August 7, 2007, police on a routine patrol found the body of 36-year-old Deborah K. Cook in Hunter Park on the city's east side. Like the other women, she'd been brutally beaten about the face and head. Her body had been left naked below the waist and a stick had been inserted into her vagina.
1: Deborah's body had been found leaning against a tree about 50 yards from Hunter Park's public pool, which was empty and undergoing renovations that summer. Joe Nelson, executive director of the nearby Allen Neighborhood Center, said in an interview with the Lansing State Journal at the time that Hunter Park was was a different place at night, a haven for sex work and drug deals. She noted the neighborhood was working to change the atmosphere in the park, having recently added a hoop house to grow <laughs> vegetables and pave the walking path. Wow, progress! <laughs>
0: a hoop house the fuck is a hoop house sounds fun (laughs) there it is there it is (laughs) so I looked it up and I guess a hoop house is a small greenhouse yeah that'll fix all the problems sounds like a great place to start growing some cannabis (laughs) so this is from Minnie Uh, she says I mean I guess it is kind of a nice thing to do that to try to change the atmosphere of the park and make it a place where more people might want to go. But I'm not sure a greenhouse with a walkway left alone at night is really any better than a park without those things left alone at night. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a privileged, basic white lady solution to a problem that is way too complex to be solved (laughs) by the simple addition of a greenhouse or maybe a pumpkin spice latte cart, if I'm being (laughs) honest here. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the money spent on that could have been better spent elsewhere. Like, I don't know social services, maybe free mental health care, job opportunities, affordable housing, possibly,
1: maybe anyone, anyone, out <laughs> anyone, there? anyone.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there were notable similarities between Deborah's murder and the other murders in Lansing. She was single. She was beaten and she had been sexually assaulted with a foreign object. But Deborah was younger than the other victims and police knew her as a sex worker. So they missed the connection again or mm. they just ignored it yeah. um because she was a, a sex worker and great job you messy ass hoes just <laughs> outstanding work nigga
0: <laughs> on august 3rd 2007 bake stopped attending a lance <laughs> lansing's <laughs> <laughs> A Lansing substance abuse treatment program that he'd been mandated to attend as part of his parole. But for some reason, the treatment program officials didn't find it necessary to notify Bako Bits' parole officer about it.
1: Okay. Uh, So on August 9th, 2007, a woman in Lansing called 911 to report that her ex boyfriend, Matthew E. Macon, had kicked in a window at her house and threatened to kill her. Mm. She had fled, taking her cell phone with her. Lansing police at the time didn't think the incident important enough to inform Bego Bits parole officer about it and didn't see a connection to any other recent events so failed to pick Bego Bits up for questioning and i'm just curious um this woman is reporting that somebody tried to kill her we don't know for sure but i i'm under the impression his girl ex-girlfriend was a black woman or a woman of color and okay. that might have contributed to them
0: ignoring her pleas for yeah. help yeah yeah um, but but also they you know, a lot of times they do, t- especially you know, back what fifteen years or so ago, um, mm-hmm. they just ignore women.
1: <laughs> ignore, yeah, ignore. Um, yeah, uh, bl- blame it on her. They or, don't. They uh, don't, just don't disregard it much. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So
1: you might say they epically failed.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that same day on August 9th, 2007, Lansing police had discovered the body of 46-year-old Deborah Renforce, a white woman, in her home on North Washington Street. She'd been sexually assaulted and beaten to death.
1: Debra had moved to Lansing seven years prior from Mount Clemens, Michigan, a city on the outskirts of Detroit. Friends say that she was a sex worker who was trying to get out of the business and had lately been cleaning homes for work to try to find another way to support herself.
0: Debra was the third woman to be bludgeoned to death in the city in two weeks. And she was found in the same house on Washington Avenue where Barbara Jean Tuttle had been found back in December of 2004. The same house.
1: Wow. Wow. It's like he
0: either wanted to get caught or wanted to test whether or not he could kill someone in the very same house years mm-hmm. later and get away with it. Yeah. Or maybe he felt connected to this house in some way. I don't know. Right. Um, maybe he just got a kick out of it. I don't know.
1: I kind of think he, he did. And there's another part of the story where I'm like, oh, he he's playing with them.
0: He yeah. thinks this yeah. is a
1: game. Uh, yeah. So in any event, Lansing police finally figured out that they were dealing with a serial killer. The victims were mostly older women living alone were usually sexually assaulted and were bludgeoned to death with whatever object was nearby and handy. Handy? Is that the right word for this? Ooh, this hammer is so handy for killing folks. Come on down to Harbor Freight, or you can order it on Amazon. It's so handy. Uh,
0: Sounds very weird. Anyway, long story short, it was a similar emo for all of the murder. Now that detectives knew they had a serial killer to catch, they put together a task force and began to do research on older cases in Lansing and uncovered a string of unsolved sexual assaults of older women on the city's west side in 2003. These women had also been beaten and sexually assaulted and reported that their attacker had initially come to their door offering to do yard work, then got into their homes by asking for a glass of water or to use the phone.
1: Ooh, no no no. On August 27th, 2007, 64-year-old retiree Sandra Eichhorn was found stabbed to death in her home where she lived alone. She was retired from a General Motors plant and was a fan of NASCAR racing and of playing Kido. So she lived just around the corner from Harry's Place, a popular bar on the city's west side, where she would regularly go to play Kino.
0: Sandra had been at home eating a bowl of spaghetti when she was interrupted by the killer. In the Mm. bowl, police found a business card to a computer repair store on Saginaw Street. Okay, now I'm thinking you really did want to get caught. Yeah. That's a really obvious question clue to be left mm-hmm. in a bowl of food mm-hmm. where no one would just accidentally leave something like that uh, right quite literally a calling card was left <laughs> to be found by police like saying here i am come and get me yeah it's uh i don't i don't
1: i know we've talked about serial killers in the past who like collect things from their victims but right. he seems to like staging leave
0: things you know? yeah yeah
1: Um, So anywho, fortunately, the Lansing police didn't miss the significance of this either. Wow. Way to go, guys. Wow. That's that's shocking. Well done. (laughs) And went to the computer repair store go-go Inspector Gadget Repair Store to see if they could get more information about the killer. When the police talked to the store's owner, he told them that a black man had come into the shop asking to have a password changed on a laptop. The man said that a friend had given him the laptop.
0: Okay, okay. Mm, Okay. When the store owner asked the man for his name, number, and address, all typical information that you would normally give at a store to have work like this done, the man didn't want to give it. Immediately, this made the owner think that the laptop was likely stolen, uh-huh. and he persisted in asking the man for this information. Eventually, the man gave his phone number, address, and his name, which turned out to be Matthew Macon. bake a bits
1: Got him! <laughs> <laughs> so, on August 28th, 2007, Linda Jackson answered a knock at her back door. Back door?! um red flag from yeah, that someone would scare who scare me yeah but i wonder if i don't know much about the midwest it's a foreign land but if it's one of those neighborhoods where people don't have back fences yeah or fences yeah there in their yard.
0: there are um i have lived in places like that where there's no fences yeah, yeah. it's always really weird Yeah,
1: yeah. give me a big fence. Exposed. (laughs) Give me my own prison, please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he claimed to be looking for work. She explained that she didn't have any money in the house and that her dog didn't like strangers, so she couldn't let him in or give him any work at the moment. She asked him to give her his name and contact info so that she could contact him at a later date if she had some work for him and money to pay him for the work. That's a very smart thing to do.
0: It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. He gave his name, Matthew Macon, and when she turned to get a pad of paper to write it down, he walked into her house and began beating <gasps> her about the head with a beer bottle. Oh, my God. She screamed, and as she did so, her dog came rushing downstairs, barking, and scared Baco Bits away. <laughs> yes! Oh, I love it. The dog ran him off before he could do anything else to Linda. And now she had his name, which she did not hesitate to give to the police when they came to talk to her at the hospital.
1: Yes, wonderful job, Linda. So with Linda's description of her attacker and the name she supplied, plus evidence in her house, police were able to get an arrest warrant to pick up bako bits a.k.a. Making up <laughs> Linda, you are our hero. I need a hero. La-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la <laughs> in the night. And her name is Linda. She gave the description of our attacker. <laughs>
2: We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.
1: Now, we are going to get into the investigation and the arrest.
0: Hit it, Beth. That night, officers spotted a pedestrian who fit the description of Baco Bits. All the law enforcement agencies involved in the search converged on the area where he had been seen. Police officers jumped out of their cars and apprehended him. The arresting officers told Baco Bits that he was being arrested on a parole violation warrant, but he knew something else was up by the number of police vehicles that had converged on the area. Commenting, quote, "All this for a warrant?" Unquote. <laughs> yeah so he's not he's not dumb right this guy. right
1: and he's also very familiar with the law enforcement and what they yeah. do um so this might have been unusual compared to all the other times he'd been picked up um right. so Stuart dunning's the ingham county prosecutor at the time said that it was unusual for a multiple homicide serial killer case to be solved this quickly without linda it might have taken much longer to catch him i mean considering the track record of the messy ho lansing police department so far much longer and more <laughs> middle-aged women living alone would have been assaulted and killed but hey those middle aged ladies' lives are over anyway, right? Right, um, right. Yeah. So who cares if somebody attacks these older ladies living alone, especially the ones who've been involved in sex work? Um, they don't matter, right? Um, then this is, you know, obviously not true to us, but this is yeah. the attitude and actions of law enforcement. So right. they just threw these people away.
0: And they need to do better. Yes. While Bacon beats <laughs> big
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is a good good uh, name. it is a good name well yeah. done Minnie
0: <laughs> While Baco bits was already in custody on August 29, 2007, the day after the attack on Linda, 41-year-old Karen Louise Delgado Yates, a Latinx woman, was found inside a vacant house on Hickory Street in Lansing, severely injured but still alive. The house had been up for sale and a prospective buyer who happened to be looking through the house that day found her oh my god yeah. can you imagine you just you're looking for a house to buy and you find a body well yeah. i'm i'm a sicko
1: um yeah. i can imagine it's your, yeah, your, it is it's a, a dream it, yeah, it for is you. a weird fantasy that i have it's a, to-
0: it's a nightmare for me but a dream yes. for you
1: <laughs> and, and i i mean what became of this this house did anybody ever buy it and who cleans who cleans it up cleans like that up. i have yeah. so many
0: questions yeah so Karen was rushed to the hospital but she she died on the way. Oh, gosh.
1: Uh, Rest in power, Karen. An autopsy performed on her showed that she had a fractured skull, brain hemorrhage, a broken nose, several cracked ribs, and cuts and bruises. In in addition to having been beaten by her attacker, she had been sexually assaulted. And there was evidence that she had been tortured. Um, Karen was known to the police as a sex worker. The M.O. and Karen's traits fit with the other attacks, so her assault and murder were linked to Bake-O-Bits
0: as well. It was on this date after Bake-O-Bits had been arrested that Bakobitz's parole officer was finally given the information that he had stopped going to his court ordered substance abuse treatment hmm. program back on August 3rd and had attempted to break in and assault his ex girlfriend and threatened to kill her back on August 9th, 20 days prior to the discovery of Karen's body in the vacant house. Excellent timing on passing mm-hmm. on that info, guys. Mm-hmm, just stellar mm-hmm. work there. Yep. You yep. can't see it, but my eyes just rolled so hard that you, <laughs> I can see my own brain right now.
1: <laughs> Whoa, that's incredible, side eye. Look at that there. <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> uh, so, detectives held three separate interview sessions with Bako Bits during which he finally confessed to seven killings in all, dating back to 2004. He coldly listed off the killings like he was compiling some sort of grocery list okay let's see um one two three four five there's six people you know uh, that i have murdered and i murdered them all unquote (laughs) and he's a british he's (laughs) in in, in, in this story yes he's become become
0: british yeah (laughs) during one interview baker bit said that he had beaten ruth hallman to death with a small hammer that he found in her home Mm. He had been easily able to get her to let him in her home because of her tendency to want to help everyone. Oh, that's so mm. yeah. awful. Yeah. He had asked her for something and as she turned to go into the house for it, he'd followed her in. That is really scary. Devious. Um,
1: yeah. Quote, I pulled a little drawer out and then I seen the hammer and she had her head down and I hit her in the head. Boom. And when I hit her in the head, she tried to cover her head up and I hit her in the side of the head like and it went in oh my oh my god it went in her head and knocked a hole in it unquote wow what a detail to remember
0: i'm sure he he really enjoyed that yeah to be honest yeah Yeah. oh regarding the murder of deborah cook and why she was considerably younger than the other women who were murdered bako bits explained during one of the police interviews that according to him Debra was a crackhead, and a crackhead had testified against one of his brothers, Melvin Eugene Hobbs. That testimony had sent Hobbs to prison, and he, quote, wasn't going to let that happen again, unquote.
1: Wow. OK, so Bakelbit said he had met Debra at a local gas station and had immediately targeted her as his next murder victim. He claimed that he had offered her money for sex, but she wanted more than he was willing to pay. So he walked away. He claimed that she then followed him until he agreed to pay her what she wanted wanted, which was $20. So this is an aside from Minnie and um, shout out to Minnie for uh, writing this episode and researching it. Yeah. Um, oh I- yeah, I forgot to say that. <laughs> this episode is written by Minnie. There we go. Um, I feel like, she says, I feel like he made up the embellishment to the story just to try to further demean her. Um, I think he decided to kill her, so he's the one who followed her or asked her to follow him so that he could get her to a place where he could assault and kill her without any witnesses. Not sure why I think that, but it just seems like he wanted to control the narrative after the fact, almost excuse himself for killing her um, by trying to make it seem like she deserved what she got. Like, if she hadn't followed him, him, he wouldn't have killed her she did not deserve deserve what he did i mean even if the story is true and it had happened like that like he said it did she still didn't deserve it but yeah, i I think absolutely it did- yeah she's right I think it did not happen like he said I think he's making excuses for himself if you look at pictures of him he's always got his superior look or smarmy smile on his face that makes me want to slap the shit out of (laughs) him and I think he gets his kicks out of demeaning women Mm -hmm. and I think him saying those things about Deborah, who is no longer alive to tell her own story was a way for him to try to further demean her and
0: I agree she's on to something bars Yeah.
1: yeah so now let's get into the trial. What do you got for us, Beth?
0: bake bits was charged with the murders of Sandra and Karen, the torture of Karen, and the assault and home invasion of Linda. His trial was scheduled for November 5th, 2007. During a hearing, a forensic expert for the state police, Jeffrey Nye, the science guy...
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs>
0: <laughs> testified that DNA left at the houses where Sandra and Karen were found either matched Baco Bits's DNA profile or didn't rule him out as a suspect.
1: During the trial, testimony showed Sandra had been stabbed 36 times. 36 times by a knife from her own kitchen. One of the wounds went through a rib and (gasps) severed a major artery. This is some serious rage here. And again, a very intimate, intimate way to kill someone. And you have to get really close to stab someone and stab them that many times is overkill. Yeah.
0: He was in a a rage. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. This feels icky.
0: Yeah, It does. Baco Bits, by then 28, was convicted by jury of two counts of first-degree premeditated murder, one count of assault with intent to murder, one count of torture, and one count of first-degree home invasion.
1: On June 18, 2008, at the age of 28, frontal lobe fully formed. By the way, Baco Bits <laughs> was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment without parole for the murders of Sandra and Karen. He was also given concurrent 75 to 125 years in prison for each of the assaults on Sandra, Karen, and Linda, and for the torture of Karen, plus a term of 26 years and eight months to 40 years in prison for the home
0: invasion of Linda. so a lot of time. He's never getting out. But where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Well, back in August 2007, after Bake Bits confessed to killing Carolyn Cronenberg, saying that he was glad that Claude, (laughs) a man he'd never met before, was convicted of the crime.
1: Oh, my God. What
0: a complete and absolute fucker.
1: A goddamn motherfucker. Oh, my God.
0: Police and the Ingham County chief prosecutor decided to reexamine the evidence in the case against Claude McCollum, who had been convicted of killing Carolyn back in 2006.
1: I think this is a great move, but one that prosecutors' offices are reluctant to take. Um, Yeah. Maybe that's Very changing reluctant. now. Yeah. But um, I listen to wrongful convictions a lot. And even if there's overwhelming evidence, they still won't overturn it. They don't it, like is, it. Yeah. yeah. So they discovered that a previously unidentified fingerprint on a plastic bag found near the scene of the crime came from Baco Bits. An analysis of a damaged surveillance videotape showed Claude in a different campus building at the time that the murder of uh, Carolyn, uh, the professor, was committed.
0: Wow. Yeah. A state police detective had analyzed the surveillance tape before Claude's trial and had written a report Mm -hmm. in which he concluded that Claude could not have committed the crime, could not have committed the crime. Wow! The trial prosecutors claimed that they had disclosed the report to Claude's defense attorney. Sure, of they course, did. Yeah, right. The defense attorney said that he did not see it. Of course, yeah, they did not.
1: They did not. Oh my no.
0: god, that's horrible. That's horrible.
1: That's. I mean, that's a violation. That's. I think what's yeah. what, called a Brady violation. You're supposed to give the other side. The prosecution is supposed All the to give evidence. the defense. Yeah. All of it. Um yeah. wow, that is so awful. Um, don't vote for whoever that is, uh, Lansing <laughs> listeners, um, on your next election. And, and not
0: only that, but um why would you wanna convict somebody you know is not guilty? Why? Because the numbers, the numbers. You get uh, more convictions, yeah, no you get more support, me. you get yeah, more money, more no funding.
1: It's nope. it's it's really diabolical <laughs> yeah it's it it's, is. A, it's it's a really bullshit. awful it's... part of our system Ugh, um gross and, i hate uh, it i hate it here <laughs> right and <laughs> i don't think any consequences came of the prosecutor yeah, until i think I, I think he got popped for like prostitution or oh, for okay. um uh engaging in um not, he wasn't. He wasn't engaged in sex work, but he hired a sex worker. I okay. think allegedly.
0: Don't fact check me on that. Okay. But I heard. I she, think she I heard She might that. have just made that up.
1: Yeah. So um, <laughs> <laughs> the detective had been questioned b- briefly about part of the video during the trial, but prosecutors did not ask him about his conclusion that Claude could
0: not have committed this murder. So let me get this straight: the prosecutors knew that Claude could not have committed the crime, yet we're perfectly happy to work towards getting him convicted anyway. That is some, as we said, seriously fucked up bullshit. Oh, yeah.
1: It's just, it's disgusting. And um, all Claude was doing was trying to answer their questions. And he just, the system will chew you up and spit you and 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 not let you go yeah, yeah. um in september 2007 the ingham prosecuting attorney joined claude's lawyer in asking the michigan go- court of appeals to vacate his conviction a little late buddy but i guess it's better late than never so he was yeah. in prison for like what a, two years almost um yeah the court something like gra- that Yeah. The court granted the joint motion. And in October 2007, after almost three years spent in custody, Mm -hmm. three years waiting trial and then convicted and sent to prison, Claude was finally released and the prosecuting attorney dismissed the charges.
0: In 2010, Claude settled a lawsuit against the county for two million. Amen. Yeah. It should have been more. Yeah. Yeah. The lead prosecutor in McCollum's case was fired. OK, he, at least he got fired. Yeah. After it was revealed that they didn't disclose the video evidence to the defense team that would have proven his innocence. Amen again. Mm, yes. <laughs> Although I think they should have added some prison time as well, just so that the prosecutor could directly experience what they'd done to this poor man.
1: Oh, I wish I wish they had, too. I mean, honestly, yeah. um, but there's a wonderful spot in hell for him mm-hmm. with his name on it. Um, that year, Bagel Bits attempted to appeal his own convictions, claiming ineffective assistance of counsel, and he was denied, denied Bagel <laughs> Bits who was by then serving multiple life sentences, was not charged with Carolyn's murder as he was already in prison with no chance of getting out and it was considered a waste of resources. Hmm, Tell the family that. He
0: was also never charged with the murder of 45-year-old Barbara Jean Tuttle back in 2004. But considering that she was murdered in the same house Mm. and in the same manner and was about the same age as Mm -hmm. 46-year-old Deborah Runforce, it's highly likely he was responsible for her death as well.
1: Yep. Couldn't agree more. So now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think made Macon snap. Um, So this is from Minnie. And she says, I think the guy, as much as i hate who he grew up to be had zero chance of really becoming anything else given the childhood experiences that he had although i do wonder what became of his sister oh yeah who went through the same abuse as a child and for longer. Did she turn out okay? If so, what were the differences in her life? I do also wonder why he picked the victims that he did. He clearly harbored rage toward older white women who lived alone. And I'm wondering who in his life was the person he was assaulting and killing in effigy over and over again. He did pick sex workers sometimes, but I wonder if that was because he thought they wouldn't be missed. Not sure. What do you think, Beth?
0: Well, I agree with many. His childhood was atrocious. Yeah. And I think it made him a very angry man. Mm -hmm. And he took out his rage on women. Um, Why he chose the ones he did, I don't know either. Mm -hmm. It's possible it was just the luck of the draw. It sounds like he went around knocking on women's doors to see who would let him in. Yeah. So, um, or, you know, maybe he targeted them. I don't really know. It's hard to say. Yeah. But um, definitely. His childhood was Mm -hmm. the biggest factor, I think. Yeah.
1: I think so, too. Um, I'd also like to offer the most epic fuck you to the police, (laughs) the detectives who preyed on Claude, a vulnerable adult, by the way. He had learning disabilities um, and he was experiencing homelessness. Um, I mean, how how low can you can you get officers and the prosecutors who tried him anyway? Um, I feel for the victims who lost their lives. But what was done to Claude was also horrifying. Um, And his life and freedom were taken because he just tried to do the right thing. And I feel bad for the child that was Matthew at one point, And I feel bad for his sister, um, the abuse they suffered. Um, and it's interesting. His, M.O. was what was done to him. He, you know, with using that's why it's obvious that it was his childhood. Absolutely. Hurt people hurt other people. It's not an excuse, but certainly an explanation. And after he became a ward of the state, this is another thing that I think might have contributed is is he was like a, a thrown away. It's like the world was showing him and treating him like he was trash and disposable as a child. Um, And that's how he treated his victims. Um, And the 36 stabbing thing and the severe beatings were overkill. I said he beat one woman with the top of the lid of a toilet. You know, those heavy things? Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah. And I think it speaks to how angry he was inside. However, He did sit, say in his confession that he liked seeing the fear in people's faces, in their eyes. Yeah. And that's not surprising,
0: really, because. Given, um, yeah. Y- yeah. Uh, some people uh, who are abused. Mm hmm they um, relate to their abuser and they Mm -hmm. become the abuser and Mm -hmm. they want to see that fear uh, makes them feel powerful when they felt powerless as a child. Right.
1: And I think that he really got off on that. Um, And um, my understanding is he intentionally targeted women who were alone because they would be defenseless against him. Um, So this is a really... Um, is I had never heard of this individual. This case, is, I hadn't either. Yeah. Um, it just the level of violence really blew me
0: away. Oh yeah, and and how he kind of fucked with the police too. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, wow. Um, talk about brazen. So, yeah. um, now we are going to get into how not to get murdered, self. So, If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences.
1: So the past few episodes, I think we've asked listeners to come up with some tips um, mm-hmm. and we haven't gotten many, but Lo Quinn, um, I think she she maybe sensed we needed some laughs. So these are just a couple <laughs> funny ones. Uh, she, Lo Quinn said, uh, keep a friend around who's trained in Taekwondo, uh, <laughs> great tip. And yeah. um, her other tip, one of her other tips, she gave a few. One was, oh, be six feet tall and 300 pounds. <laughs> Excellent tip. Uh, So, and it's the holidays, so I'm working on it. Also, um, it is still robbing season. So, this one's for me. So, keep your head on a a swivel and don't open the door for anyone you don't know and you are not expecting. Yeah. Um, So, now it's shout out time where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color, any minoritized or otherwise groups of folks, or any true crime goodies. I got dose um indefensible have you heard of it um i think so oh my god it's like the daily show mixed with 2020 and dateline wow Um, and it is so uh, like it's just really great so it's with comedian her name's jenna friedman and she travels the country in this true crime series and it's less of a like whodunit and more of a why the fuck does this stuff keep happening? And like in one part she's talking to this, uh, lady, uh, who's talking about the economic strife that contributes to crime. So she's okay. like, joke, she's like, uh, so I see if I give a man $50, then he won't beat the shit out of his wife. And she's like, the lady's like, not exactly. So it's, she has conversations like that with people and it's just really, um, it's a a fresh take on in true crime and I I like it. Okay. Um, Cool. Also it's a show. So it's streaming. Um, Where is it streaming? uh, I don't remember. Hang on a second.
0: I I just Googled it. It's AMC.
1: Okay. There you go. Um, And then a podcast called survivors heal with Olia. Um, Cheryl's and, um, it's, she's a woman of color. She's a black woman from the Bay area. (laughs) And I wonder if we knew each other, like when we were kids anyway, by tackling (laughs) the constructs that keep cycles of violence spinning and survivors heal. She interviews survivors of, there's only a few episodes out now, but like her, the first episode is her survivor story. She, um was raped numerous times and mm. talks about all the experiences so it might be hard like hard to listen to hard if you to are listen a victim to, yeah. but she uh, always ends with a triumph um and so um like she talked to um just people who survived really hard things violent crime um losing loved ones to violence etc
0: so um okay. it's a wherever you get your podcast oh great recommendations
1: you. What do you got?
0: I wanted to shout out. Welcome to Chippendales on Hulu. Oh,
1: I fucking love
0: this show. I'm
1: so glad you are it out.
0: <laughs> so it's an eight episode true crime docudrama starring Kumail Nanjiani. Is that how mm, it's pronounced? Nanjiani. Y- yes. Yes. He's yummy. He's a yummy yeah, man. I know. <laughs> I I find him really attractive. <laughs>
1: yes. He's funny and handsome. Give yes. me more.
0: And his his voice. I love his voice. Yeah. Yeah. Too. <laughs> so it tells the true story behind Chippendales, the revolutionary all-male review founded by Steve Banerjee in 1980s Los Angeles. It's a tale of male strippers, jealousy, and murder.
1: Yeah! I was like, what? <laughs>
0: murder? In Chippendales? Yep. Yep. This is wild! <laughs> by the way, have you ever been to a Chippendales show? I have not. It's no. pretty pretty wacky in there. Uh, So I, one time I was at a bar and Uh they were, um, they had like a show before they opened up. It was like a dance club. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, I was waiting like in the bar area and there's like this other area where they were doing like an all male review uh-huh. and the women <laughs> were just screaming. They go nuts. It's they go so wild. i anything like it. <laughs> I know. And so I kind of like peeked. Behind the curtain uh, mm-hmm. where they all were to see what was going on, and uh-huh. I saw that it was an all male review and that these women were, were just losing their minds. <laughs> so it was it was wild. I don't really yeah. get it, but okay. <laughs> it's, it's just,
1: it is really funny. And they capture a lot of that in the show. Like,
0: yeah. Kumail's
1: yeah. character's like, what? People what like is going this? on? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a really great show. I'm glad you shouted that out. Great shout-out. So that is Indefensible with comedian Jenna Friedman on AMC. Um, the podcast Survivors Heal with Oya L. Sheryls. And welcome to Chippendales on Hulu.
0: What? Uh uh what's the end? I found, I found the end of, of the episode. It's here. Oh,
1: no!
0: <laughs> okay, well, I guess that's it for today. Where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is FruitLoopsPod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. And as As always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop
1: every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
2: killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows